Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. What kind of guides you in terms of, you know, if you're going to maybe go a little more uh, instrumental, a little more vocal, a little more R&B, a little more funk, a little more jazz? I think in general, it's been the players in the band. When um, during the pandemic, Lyle, uh, you know, decided he needed to branch out and do his own thing. And we lost our trumpet player, uh, Paris, who's playing with Harry Styles now. So, I mean, these guys are doing... All the different players, when they do different stuff, are all doing creative, interesting things. Uh, it, you know, we sort of embrace that change. You know, it's, it becomes like an opportunity. So when that happened, I was like, well, you know what? We've had a horn section for a while. And there's a lot of funk bands out there with horn sections. Let's do something different. You know, let's try and find a different sound with what we're going for that, um, that defines us, you know, uh, a little differently than the bands that we've been sort of lumped in with to a certain degree, uh, and gives us a chance to like hear our sound in a different way. That's, you know, when it's different, it's inspiring, you know, it, it gets you to try new ideas and to explore different sonic avenues, you know, so our, our, um, saxophonist drew has embraced synthesizers and keyboards and you know now plays keyboards in the band along with joey and uh, for us it's great man it's like all of a sudden we have these different textures going on during the songs and uh it's just that change is really inspiring to, to try new ideas and to mix it up you know uh and especially with this new record doing all instrumental you know, trying to find ways to keep the song creative without there being a sort of, you know, the horn section. Um, I don't know. We were sort of getting formulaic with it, I think. So like without that horn section formula, it was like, okay, how are we going to make the song interesting without that, you know? And some of it is like kind of going down more of a rock thing. Some of it is going down more of a synth funk thing, 80s style, like just... There's so many different avenues, especially when you change up the instrumentation, that uh, it's just, you know, it's inspiring to try and push into that direction. So really, it's like the, it's the instrumentation, it's the 
who's in the band, the players, and what their inspiration is, is what sort of pushed us in a certain direction. You know, I, it's not, I don't think it's ever been anything too contrived. You know what I mean? I think it's just kind of fallen into our laps and we've kind of, so we've been flexible enough to go with it, you know? There's on the new record, definitely on a couple of tracks, two or three, some, you know, Roger Troutman uh, influence. Is that all through Joey or is other people in the band fans too? Oh, that's, oh, we're all fans. I mean, I used, me and Joey started a band called Juno What, which was right. really fun, like electro funk uh, influence, you know, hand claps on every song and zapping Roger vibe. Uh, but that's Joey for sure. Like I want to do more of that stuff because I love it so much. But um, yeah, that's Joey's. That's definitely Joey's influence. And he's so great with the talk box that we couldn't resist putting a couple of those on there. Did you ever get to see Roger live before he left us? No, no, I regret that. Yeah, that would, that would have been pretty amazing. Definitely seen the videos. Yeah, I got to see him a few times. It was cool. He used to always bring yeah. him from the back on his bouncer's shoulders playing the guitar. <laughs> do right? Roger do it. Yeah. Is that where Prince got it from? And that one uh, video where he comes down on the guy's shoulders at the James Brown <laughs> show, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I don't know. They were both uh, right around the same time. That was the early yeah. 80s. So. Yeah, early 80s. Yeah. Um, That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, maybe then, Joey, Joey should try that. <laughs> <laughs> With a... Um, was it Melodica? The... Oh yeah, keyboard you blow, or or a, or a keytar, yeah. keytar, yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I hear you know, I hear, and of course, this is throughout the band's history. You know, some meters influence and um, a little bit of that New Orleans, you know, funky yeah. vibe. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we just everything kind of hits us, and we try it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, uh, you know, I think that's like it's crucial to keep your sort of your mind open to different you know, ideas that different players might want to bring in. And, you know, we've, we, we have like, it's our ninth album. So we have way more material that we don't play than that. We do play. That's one of the things with us is like, we never really, we don't really have a hit songs, you know, or anything like that. We've got a couple of songs that are clearly more popular than others, but we're not attached to the past, you know? And we're lucky enough that if we write a song and, and the pocket is killing and the arrangement's cool and it allows us to improvise and to have energy, our audience responds to that song as much as they respond to the song that's like number one on Spotify for us. We're like fortunate enough that our audience is just open-minded and into what we do, you know, or maybe even say how we do it more than it is what we do, you know, so that like we fulfill those parameters, you know, if we can make our crowd dance, if we can show that we're, you know, we're into it and that, you know, we've got enthusiasm for it, then they respond likewise, you know, and that's all we need. So it really gives us this like, open palette of music we can keep trying. We never feel like we're stuck playing the music that we've been playing over the years. And that there's a lot of freedom in that. Oh yeah. That's a great point. I think, you know, just the how rather than the what, you know, because, yeah. you know, that's, 
how I think a lot of fans of the these genres are, you know, and that go to the festivals, you know, that's the beauty yeah. of that kind of audience and that kind of fan being receptive that way. Yeah. Um yeah. That's pretty great. Um, does the uh, band rehearse a lot and you know what's the uh, process like yeah we try to but it's hard you know when we're touring as much as we tour uh trying to squeeze in rehearsals can be a little stressful you know so we try and um take time off from touring like say we'll take a month where we just do a couple of shows and not try and book club dates you know because you can always fill in your calendar with club dates but uh if you just do that you're kind of denying yourself some of your creative process it's pretty hard to be creative on the road some bands can do it i guess where you can sound check at rehearsal or rehearse at sound check and that sort of thing but um for us it's you know it's, it's tricky we'd rather have that time at home get together a few days a week you know, work out ideas, go back home, you know, flesh it out a little more and then bring it back in. For me, that's that's my process. Joey, for example, is really good at kind of writing things complete and bringing it in and having things, you know, 90% done. Whereas I like to have like a, a baseline and maybe a, you know, an A and a B section and then get the guys to play it and you know try their ideas as far as rhythm parts go and then you know record it bring it home mess around with it a little bit more bring it back kind of go back and forth that way but it's different for everybody everybody in the band's different you know how they bring in songs uh but yeah i would like to i would like to do more of the rehearsal side of things and the creative side of things you know i'd love to be able to put out an album every year you know that to me is uh is exciting so do you guys um, always record uh live in studio or do you do some tracking and uh it's a little bit of both it's a little bit of both generally speaking we'll track the rhythm section maybe even drew doing some horns or keyboards uh and depending on what we want to do we uh we might replace parts at home you know, like I said, we've all kind of gotten our home recording setups a little more dialed. Uh, so, like, bring the parts home, and sometimes we'll like share all the stems, and then we'll kind of pass it around. So everyone will like kind of go in and maybe do some edits, and then like add some layers and that sort of thing, <clears throat> and pass it around, and then eventually we'll send it off to a, a guy who'll mix it. You know, there's like uh, more than one way to skin a cat. So, you know, we find that like, are we, well, we've gotten our process pretty well dialed as far as recording. There's always new ways, new avenues to explore. You know? What about for you personally? Are you somebody who likes to really, you know, tinker with something a lot or are you like, Hey, we got that. Let's move on. No, I like to tinker. Yeah. That's my, I'm always okay, to like, you know, the chagrin of some of the guys in the band. I'm like, let's try it this way this time. Let's try it this way. You know, I feel like if I have an idea, I need to try it. You know, like any idea that pops from my head, I feel like is sort of some part of me, like, you know, you know, that needs to be satisfied. So I'm always messing around. And I like to mess around with songs like, 
maybe in the middle of the song, I'll throw in like a, some kind of cover tease, you know, just to like change it up or I'll figure out a, a way to segue two songs together. Um, or for writing a song, I'll mess around with, you know, Oh, let's do a bass drop out of here. Let's, you know, double the chorus here. Like, I mean, there's so much you can do these days once you throw your tracks into Logic or Ableton or whatever you use. It's so easy to cut and paste and manipulate it. For me, it's like, I'm not a purist. You know, I feel like if you're, if you're making a recording of an album, a studio version of a, of a song, then, um, then, you know, anything's fair game. You know, and I don't feel like, oh, it has to represent, you know, the way you played it live in the studio or the way you may play it live at all. It's like I, I'm perfectly happy to, like, chop things up and to mix it up. Anything to make it interesting, creative, make it a better song, make it something that, you know, it's going to be more accessible or more fun to listen to, whatever it is. I have no problem, like, manipulating it. Because then, I, you know... Because then you have a studio version, you have a live version, you know, and there's two different things for people to listen to, you know, and we've got a, a few live records on the, on our Spotify, just for that reason. It's like, you know, let's let people hear how we do it live now. Um, and for me, it's more interesting because then I know that I can change it up when we go play it live, mess with the tempo or whatever, the feel a little bit to make it more appropriate for the live uh, experience. There's a good and bad side, a pro and con side to that from my perspective, just because yeah. I, it makes me think of a lot of the uh, uh, people like, you know, I'm thinking of like Jesse Johnson back in the day, who is this incredible guitar player, but he hardly ever unleashed it on record, you know, and he would say, right. I talked to him once and he said, oh, I saved that for the live show. Right. Like, right, right. Okay. But, <laughs> but I want to hear that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes it can be hard to emulate what you do live in the studio, you know, and then you feel like you're, um, you know, that you're like sort of uh, being contrived with that energy, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I never listen to our records. Once I get done with it in the studio, it's like, I never, I just never listen to it again, you know, unless I'm trying to like relearn something or, you know, show something to somebody else i don't know it's like for me it's like i you know i have that experience like the, the experience of creating a song i get obsessed about it. i listen to it all the time over and over again i tell uh i tell people that like mixing a record for me is like having a head of knotted hair that you're combing through and as you comb through that the head of hair you kind of take out the knots each time and that's like every time you listen to it you like, oh, you got to stop and clean up one of the little tangles. And you go back to the top and you listen to it again. And you get a little further, but then you got to clean up another tangle. And it's like you keep like combing through the hair and brushing the hair until eventually like there's no more tangles. You know, you don't feel any more tangles. It just goes through and it's like silky smooth and that's it. And that's when you like finally listen to this, the song. You tell yourself like, when am I going to be done? It's like, when you can just listen to and there's no more tangles and that's it you know it's like you're good and so like once i've done that it's like then i'm done i don't i never listen to it again you know what i mean it's like then i think about the live version and i listen to the live version all the time i'll record our shows and i'll like 
you know, even multi-track our shows just to like, just to mix it for fun, you know, and check out what we did that night. And I, I love like listening to our shows right after we played. Cause then you remember all the little tweaks and all the little things that did or didn't go well, you know what I mean? And you get a lot of ideas that way about how to manipulate stuff. But, uh, but the studio version is just like, all right, did that been there, you know? Yeah. There's some tedium involved, you know, with that process. Some what? Some tedium to that process. Yeah. 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 And you release it into the world and yeah, you're done. Yeah. You're done. (laughs) You know, uh, we were talking before we started recording and you mentioned about opening for uh, P-Funk recently. Um, Had you played with P-Funk prior to that? Uh, Any any bills? No. That was the first time. That was the first time. So did you get to interact with those guys at all? Yeah. Yeah. What were your your impressions? The drummer, Benzel. Great Uh guy. Great guy. He was super cool to hang out with. He was uh, very energetic and funny as hell. He was great to hang with. A few of the guys uh, were super cool. I mean, some of those guys are legends, you know? The horn section they had, those guys were legends. Uh, bass player, I'm, I'm bad with names, so I'm, you know, I'm going to try. Oh, Lige Light, Curry. Yeah, no, there was a there was a guy who played bass on the Parlay records and the Brides records. And oh, played. Rodney Skate Curtis. Yeah, 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 him. <laughs> he was great to hang with. He was amazing, and he would come out just for like one song. But he'd be there at soundcheck and they'd just be running through classic funk covers, you know what I mean? Just having fun with it during soundcheck. And uh, man, that was a pleasure to watch seeing those guys. They're all like super sweet, very kind. Uh, George's like grandchildren were in the band. Uh, that was really, really, really cool to you know, see the whole generational thing. George looked great. Like he was healthier than I've ever seen him just like straight edge and just energetic on stage and wearing a suit, you know, looked fucking sharp. Uh, and the band was playing killer. I mean, they're, they're saying it was like, they're billing it as like their last shows, but it, for me, like it went so well, they did so well. I'm, I'm having a hard time. imagining they're not going to do it again. Mm-hmm. I hope they do it again. Yeah. Um, I've seen him so many times. Uh, last time was in uh, Greensboro a couple of years ago, and they had uh, Fishbone and Galactic. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, yeah. We we Fishbone was on some of the shows too. That was that was a pleasure to meet those guys. What was the first gig or tour, um, if you remember, that got you guys out of Colorado? Ah, uh, out of Colorado. Because I'm sure you were playing a lot locally, right? And at some point, yeah. you had an opportunity to go somewhere. Man, I guess it was uh, the first show we did outside of Colorado was in New Mexico. My buddy, um, he put that Jeff Coriel booked me to play at his friend's wedding. And, uh, and then we booked like three or four shows in conjunction with that and um 
And uh, and that was still when it was Dave Watts Motet. Uh, and that was like, you know, realizing that we could actually tour and make this sort of thing happen, you know. But it's always been a very one step at a time process. Like I tell younger bands, like, get your home scene happening. You know, like, that's that's the place where you can guarantee yourself an audience more likely than anywhere else. And you have the ability to really promote yourself well. And you have the ability to sort of get a fan base to really attach themselves to you. If you're like home team band, you know, if you're the band that everyone's like, oh yeah, this is, this is, you know, for us, it was like, this is, you know, Motet's like Colorado's band, you know, uh, Motet's Boulder's band, or Motet's Denver's band. Like you want the people to associate where they live with who you are and the, their favorite band. And you know what I mean? That sort of thing helps gather your uh, fan base together to the point where when you go out on the road and you do lose money, which you will, because everybody loses money first time they go out. Then when you come home, you have a show or a series of shows that you can rely on to fill your coffers up, you know, to give you confidence that you can keep doing it, you know, to pay your bills and all that, you know, but if you try and go out and tour before you've got that sort of security going on, then you're going to get yourself in hot water, you know, and you're going to make it tougher to keep band members playing with you because you're going to have a harder time paying them, you know, you're going to have a harder time, you know, paying them what they deserve to be paid or even like having them see that there's progress being made, you know? So we always did that. We like didn't tour that hard to start with, you know, we, we put out a record first and we, um, you know, we made sure that our Colorado scene was was kicking before we uh, we really went out there and toured a bunch. And I was, we were lucky. It was like we were the right place at the right time because that's when Colorado was really starting to blossom with our, the, the music scene, especially Denver, but all over Colorado. You know, Colorado was always a great music scene throughout the 90s. That's why I moved there, you know, especially Boulder. But since then, it's just exponentially blown up, you know, and we kind of rode that wave. So uh, that really helped us traverse some of the ups and downs that we went through with our lineup and, you know, the different, um, you know, the different sort of progress that we had made as a band. You know, in particular, the lineup, whenever your lineup changes, you kind of, it's a little bit of a setback for some people, you know, people always sort of expecting, you know, this person, that person to be there in the band or, you know, to have this instrumentation or that instrumentation when it changes, you know, you kind of, it's a little bit of a setback, but, you know, we've always been lucky to have, to be embraced by Colorado music scene, music fans, to keep us going through those, those periods. Is there anyone else besides you from the first record? No. No, Garrett played on uh, our fourth record. And that was, he was the first, 
that was yeah he was the first to play on um one of our records guys that are in the band now have you gotten any radio play do you get radio play locally uh i don't know (laughs) (laughs) probably some you know i think that like you know the there's a station in uh in Denver, KBCO, there's a station in Boulder, KGNU. You know, there's there's some internet radio stuff, you know. Uh, but I don't really pay that much attention, to be honest. I know I pay attention more to like Spotify numbers and that sort of thing. But um, no, I don't think I don't think really we do, and, and we, or that we necessarily need it. You know, I think our fans are you know listening through Bandcamp and. Uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, you know, internet. Well, uh, all day I got uh, as a download. Is it also available in hard copy? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we got some CDs. No no vinyl at shows? Or... It'll happen, but that, that whole world's kind of crazy. It's like there's like a year waiting list to get vinyl made, you know. It's, uh, it's really interesting how that's a thing. Apparently, cassettes are a thing now, too. Ah. <laughs> it's bizarre, but it's like people are like buying cassettes at shows now, too. Wow. What would be a couple of uh, the most unforgettable shows in your whole history with the Motet? I mean, all of our Red Rock shows. I mean, those just, those, those are so spectacular. Especially that one we did lettuce. We did one with, one with lettuce, and uh, this uh, right before we went on, this storm rolled through that just annihilated the place. People running for cover, lightning strikes, you know, like people hiding in caves, like water coming down the stairs, like a waterfall. I mean, they had to clear the entire place out. Everyone had to go to the parking lot. You know, people just drenched. You know, uh, it was a uh, crazy, we didn't think we were going to play, <clears throat> but this storm rolled through and then rolled out and set us back like maybe half an hour in our set. And, uh, and the minute they opened the doors back up, place just packed out. Everyone came back just ready to go, you know, like drenched, you know, like soaking wet, wearing rain gear and, and we've played one of the best sets of our career. Just like energy was so high. The fact that everyone came back in and we still played the show. Uh, that was like, that was unforgettable. Really. Just, How long ago was that? That was probably six years ago. Something like that. Five or six years ago. Uh, that was like, yeah, that was an amazing. One. I mean, the jam crew sets, those are always incredible. Playing on the pool deck at jam crews. Uh, watching the sun go down, you know, those are incredible. Uh, where else, man? Now you make me think everything's a blur. Anything happened before the pandemic's a little bit of a blur. Have uh, you ever uh, sat in with somebody that maybe was pretty cool? Yeah, I mean, play, I play with uh, George Porter and Eric Stoltz, and we did a bunch of, uh, you know, meter stuff. That was incredible. Recently, I did uh, a show at the Troubadour in LA. I'm sure you know that venue well. Uh, I didn't realize how historic that venue was until I went to their website and looked at the list of 
different shows they had throughout the decades. But I did a show there. My buddy Marcus Rezac put together a show, and um, it was with um, I did uh, some Z- some Zappa songs with Arthur Barrow and Ike Willis. Did uh, some Doors songs with Robbie Krieger, and I did some Weather Report um, with Felix Pastorius, all in one night. So that was a that was a pretty special occasion for me. Especially playing the the door stuff in the Troubadour with Robbie Krieger. That was how uh, how'd you end up getting cool. that gig? Oh, uh, Marcus and I, we go way back. We've been playing a bunch of music together over the years. And um, I don't know, he's got his fingers in a lot of pies. He's always putting together different lineups somehow. I just uh think through the promoter and different connections. He uh he put it together and asked me to come play. Hmm. Yeah, it was pretty great. Have you spent much time in Los Angeles? No, but I'd like to spend more, man. We, uh, my girlfriend and I, Danny, we went to, um, after that show, we went to, uh, went to, um, Universal Studios for a day and had fun messing around with that. But I realized that night we stayed right in that, that area. And I realized that the baked potatoes, like mm-hmm. a walking distance from where we were staying. So we walked down there and saw some incredible jazz, you know, uh, what a cool spot that is classic jazz venue, you know, just all the posters on the walls, a little bit divey, super small. And uh, I've been on their mailing list ever since. And I just, I can't even believe the level of players that they get in that spot, you know? Yeah. That's one thing I really miss from moving from Los Angeles to Charlotte. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that alone, that one venue alone would make me want to move to LA. <laughs> Pretty amazing, uh, but that, I, I'd like to. I'm sorry, that rain show you mentioned though, it just brought to mind something I haven't thought of in a while. And that was, I went to a Black Crows show here, uh-huh. um, and uh, it was like a light. It was out outside amphitheater, and a lightning storm broke out, and everyone had to go back in their cars and didn't know if the show was going to happen. Yeah. You know, and it was like an hour or something like that. I was in the car, yeah. and was able to go back, and it was just yeah, really cool to be able to sort of have yeah. the heavens open up if you will right right um, yeah. yeah that feeling of is this gonna happen is this not gonna happen you know like that feeling of uh okay it's gonna happen and you're you know twice as excited about playing music you know at that point it's kind of like that like this tales of the um tales of the road you know what i mean there's so many moments i we've had countless moments where we've had vehicles break down and it's just like, oh, shit, is this show going to happen or not? You know, I've been through so many different just harrowing sort of exploits of of like having to rent a vehicle last minute, like hitchhiking to a U-Haul place, you know, renting a U-Haul, driving it to the bus where it's broken down, putting all the gear in the bus and riding like a couple of us riding in the back of the U-Haul with the lights off, you know, like for three hours or whatever and then getting to the gig and like schlepping everything out and then immediately like downbeat got to play the show and those those are some of my favorite shows that i've played if i could probably like i'd probably name like a dozen shows that i've gone through like that you know i i can relate to that not being in a band but having done mobile disc jockey work for many many years and all the equipment and moving in and having you know weather issues vehicle issues 
venue issues, you know, yeah. so kind of similar yeah. and just anxiety and the, yeah, yeah. That's oh, man. <laughs> Sweat and bullets at times and right. just kind of right. make it and happen. Then, you got to do it. And then you're on stage. You're like, yes, <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> is there anyone else besides P-Funk that is like a big band that you guys, you know, outside the usual festival suspects that you guys have uh, shared a stage with? I mean, Juno What opened up for Ohio players once. Speaking oh. of Ohio players, that was cool. That was very cool. Uh, one time we played uh, before James Brown at Jazz Fest in, um, in Aspen, Colorado. And that was very cool because I got to meet James Brown at the, um, at the hotel afterwards and uh, shake his hand. That was like a special moment. Hmm. Yeah, that was very that was very cool. Um, doing the uh, jam crew sets is always cool because we get to play with different different acts. Um, you know, Steel Pulse is one of my favorite groups, hmm. and they were on one once, so that was that was very cool. What do you makes funk music so special? And what would you say is a key to locking in the pocket for funk? The feeling of funk music is what makes it so special, I think, you know, the way, uh, you know, a funk drummer might play, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's, that's why it's like, you can't quantize funk, you know, when funk gets quantized, then it becomes dubious, you know, not to say that there, it hasn't happened, you know, and, um, I mean, even when Prince did some drum program, he would mess with the time to make it funky, you know. When Dilla would make his beats, you know, it, it was funky because of the way the time felt, you know, and it wasn't quantized. So it's really like a timing thing, you know, which is not a very interesting way to put it. But, you know, it's not it's less about the patterns, you know, like you could say, like, well, the kick on one and three or you know, the snare on two and four, but it's really about the timing. You know, you can even have the timing of, uh, of the, the patterns, like don't even have to be specific. You could have the pattern of the kick be antithetical to the bass pattern, but the way the timing falls is what makes it funky or what makes it work. It's where the bass drum falls against the bass or vice versa is what makes it work or doesn't work you know it's the space between the notes you know it's the space at the end of the phrase before the downbeat that gives you that feeling that makes you want to move you know it's where the backbeat falls I mean that's why someone um like you know Nikki Glasby when she plays like where she puts that backbeat it just instantly everything's working. You know, instantly, it's not about the pattern she's playing. It's not about the fills. You know, it's just instantly because the, the snare is falling where it falls timing wise. It's like everything works. And all of a sudden that inspires everybody else to play a certain way. You know, so it's really just like a timing thing. It's like a feeling thing. And it's to me, it's like, the best players feel it in their body at the same time, you know, 
the best, some of the best funk drummers are great singers. It's kind of like that, that sort of ability to sing while you play drums allows a certain freedom for your hands to separate from like what's going on here and the time to be held here that the pulse and then the hands can like, you know, mix it up, play simple, do whatever, but the timing never wavers, you know, that, that point always falls back into place. So some of my favorite funk drummers are great singers too, you know, and I think it just says something to where uh, there's a non-attachment physically between the hands and your core, you know, uh, you know, and I think that some, you know, I'm not a teacher or anything, but when I see that with some younger players who are having trouble, like finding a pocket, with, especially with funk music, there, there's a stiffness that comes from their body uh, between the hands and the core that doesn't allow that timing that you can hear, you know what I mean, to be able to be played. You might be able to hear it, but you can't necessarily play it because there's this like stiffness. There's like this, like, you know, cement that happens between the two. And once that gets released, then there's a lot more ability to play in the pocket and to play something that's like the timing is like, you know, feels, feels good. You know what I mean? You can't explain it because there's, you know, you, there's funk music that pushes, there's funk music that lays back. There's funk music that sits right in the pocket. It's not about any of that necessarily. You know what I mean? You can't quantify it in those terms. It's just got to feel good. And everyone in the band's got to be on the same page with that, you know? But once that's the case, it's like, that's when it really like starts to make people move, you know? So it's, it's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> oh yeah. It's definitely Clearly. hard to explain. That's why I like to ask people to try. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the feel you got to be a little unconscious or subconscious, whichever is the term, you know, right? yeah. and yeah. intellectualize it. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. Did, did you have any challenges initially, like really being able to find that place or was it something that came rather naturally to you once you kind of understood how to play the drums? No, I definitely, and I still do have to shed it. You know what I mean? I shed things to sort of give myself that freedom more and more. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's just about, you know, counting through fills or singing along to parts, uh, just um, different ways of sort of, you know, letting go of that stiffness, you know, and growing up, I didn't have exposure to that really at all. I didn't have a teacher that was sort of mentoring me with that. I didn't really listen to that music. And it's, I think it's just harder when, as you get older to sort of embrace something that you're not accustomed to. And there's a lot of younger drummers, like, you know, these churchy drummers that play in the church when they're like three years old, you know, and their parents play drums. And it's like, man, that's like, I'm trying to catch up to that. That's, you know, that, that natural ability is like it's hard to compare to when you like for me like i said i was a black sheep so i was kind of on my own trying to figure it all out and i was listening to more rock and then some jazz stuff growing up so for me funk is actually um it's more of a quest 
and a work in progress and it is something that just came naturally to me you know but I, you know that passion is there it's always there it's like that's the love of the music drives you every day to, to keep you know trying when, when you uh you know you've had all these different guys in the band um what are you typically looking for when you have an opening oh man that's a that's a good question i mean there's a there's a lot to it you know what i mean because you could find a great player but they might not be that fun to hang out with you know what i mean or you might find someone that's like a great hang but there's no synergy with like writing and being creative together you know what i mean or you might be like able to like you know collaborate but you know they're not necessarily able to tour the way you want to tour you know uh, there's so many pieces to the puzzle it's like pretty damn tricky you know and there's like i think there's a lot of compromise that that needs to get made to a certain degree uh you know that but the first the first thing we look for is is how do they sound with our music how do they sound with the music that we like to play you know what i mean it's the playing part like how does that feel how does it sound when you listen back to it you know and then, you know, there's the other things. And some things you can grow into. I mean, being in a band is like being in a marriage, you know, like it's never perfect. And there's like things to figure out energetically and dynamically, you know, uh, when you're trying to communicate about music, that can be really challenging. And that's the sort of uh, commitment to getting past that and to, to sort of even accepting that that's always going to be there, that sort of friction that comes up and maybe goes away, comes back up again. That's a, you know, that's a real thing to sort of wrap your head around. Some people have a hard time wrapping their heads around it and you, they just you realize it's not going to work, you know. Uh, but I think the ones that are the most successful are the ones that, you know, you, you sort of realize that, uh, you just got to communicate and figure that sort of thing out and talk about the differences that might be and the sort of ways to get beyond that. So, you know, you know, there's musical side of it and then there's a personality side of it. Uh, you know, the first thing you look for is music. And then I think the personality part just comes over time. You know, you figure out how to like interact and work with somebody. Um, but for me, it's like, finding the best player isn't you know finding a ringer or whatever isn't number one the number one thing is somebody who wants to collaborate and is open to you know working on music music is work music is like hard work that you know takes time and takes communication and it's just no like there's magic in moments but over the sort of bigger picture it's uh it's more just you know what do they say? Perspiration than inspiration. You know, so it's you finding someone who wants to put in the time for that is like the most important thing. No, you must go through a lot of guys sometimes when you're needing to find, you know, when you're needing to fill a slot. Yeah. Well, uh, we have in the past, but the, you know, the core of the band now is, you know, we're all deeply committed to what we're doing and we're able to do it uh instrumentally with the five of us 
So uh, it's been a while before since we've sort of uh, had to go through a lot of people. Right now, really the the um, you know the sort of focus you know beyond the five of us is trying to you know find a singer that works with us and find somebody that really wants to collaborate and you know write songs and develop our our sound uh as far as like you know vocal music goes uh and so we've had a lot of guests over the last three years vocally which has been awesome because there's been so many great singers that have joined us on stage and it's exciting i think for our audience but um it's also challenging because we end up playing the same songs we want to write new songs so i think that's our next the next step in our uh, development is is finding a vocalist who really works for us and wants to collaborate and wants to sort of grow a sound, you know. Of all those uh, bands that you, you know, took up for the Halloween shows and maybe other covers that you've done, um, is there any one of them or a couple of them that were the most challenging for you to, you know, replicate or to, you know, do what you do with it? Uh, I mean, Earth, One Fire, I suppose, or P-Funk, because there's so much to chew on. With P-Funk, we did two nights of music. Uh, with Earth, One Fire, it's just the music is so challenging to come correct on, you know. Uh, but with both those bands, I love the music so much, I didn't find it difficult. I found it, you know, exhilarating to spend the time to figure it out. Uh, so th- those were both really fun. We actually, one year, we covered the music of Madonna. And, uh, but we decided to do it very different, like not Madonna trying to like take her songs and do them, you know, do a Madonna song Afrobeat or do a Madonna song, you know, drum and bass, you know, or do it like slow funk ballad style. I don't know. That was hard. (laughs) I don't think we'll ever do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire, it's that it's so uh, precise and intricate. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, three, four part harmony and all the horn lines and the percussion and the arrangements. I mean, man, that music is, that music is a challenge. Yeah. Songs like Getaway. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, man. Love it. Yeah. That stuff's amazing. I would love to do that again. Uh, well, if I have any say in it, bring it back. Although, you know, yeah. you've only done it in Colorado, right? You've never taken that on the road, right? No, we haven't. No, that's a, that's a good point. But now you got me thinking about the Isleys and the Barquets and the Ohio players. <laughs> so now I'm like, um, my mind's already, my wheels are turning. Well, as long as I can at least, you know, get my hands on a recording of it, that'll be good enough. Okay. Um, although I'd love to see it too. In yeah. fact, definitely on my bucket list. And I told... Um, Joey. Yeah, I told Joey uh, Red Rock's definite bucket list. Oh, yeah? Haven't been there. Come come on out. It's um, dude, yeah. that, that venue is incredible. Sounds yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Well, before I let you go, I want to ask you a question I'd like to ask guests. I don't know if you've seen the show much, but um, if you could only have five Desert Island albums, and I know it's not going to be definitive, but maybe what comes to mind right now as you think about it, mm. um, what five, and they can't be ones that you're part of, Okay. Um, I would say uh, Bitches Brew. 
because that one's uh, endlessly interesting to listen to. There's always something new to hear on that one. Um, probably the White Album, because those songs are so iconic to my childhood. And it's a double album, so you get the more most bang for your buck. <laughs> uh, I love this guy, Ray LaMontagne. He, uh, he put out an album called Trouble. And it's just a, like a deeply emotional record. So I've I, heard that name, but what's he play? He's a singer. He's, he's kind of like a folk singer. He's got a band, though, and the band's fantastic on the record. But, they, you know, something different. Um, believe it or not, like most, like, I, you know, I just love listening to jazz records. I would probably listen to uh, Now He Sings, Now He Sobs by Chick Corea. That one's uh, pretty sure it's Roy Haynes on that one. It's one of my favorite drummers. Mm-hmm. Um, and how many is that? That's four. That's four. <laughs> Got one more. Uh, man, I, am I, I might have to say uh, Isley's Live It Up. Mm. Yeah, man, just that music makes me so happy. You know, I could do anything. You know, it just gives me energy. So, yeah, yeah, when I, you talk about um, Ernie's drumming uh, on that track, "Live It Up," he's really yeah, are prominent on that one. Yeah. Part one, part two, like I always, yeah, always they're all the part, part one, two. part two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Yeah, uh, "Midnight Sky" is on there. That's a great track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, there you go. That adds some good variety, and I would say for sure, Miles Davis has you know consistently been the person that's on the most top fives. And I've Is done right? 300 of these shows now. And I mean, just almost everyone includes the miles. It's not always that one, you know, it's a wide variety of yeah. different ones, you know, but right, right, right. Yeah. Kind of blue, you know, I'm sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. He's, he's the man. Time for some plugs, you know, where can people go to get your record? Uh, give the website, all that. The motet.com. All our stuff's on there. Merchandise, tour dates. Uh, we're on Facebook. That's uh, that's your means, but um, motet.com has all our merch and our tour dates, uh, info about the band, that sort of thing. You can go to Bandcamp to download music. We're on Spotify and all that stuff. So it's uh, it's pretty easy to find. Yeah. And what do your tour prospects look like for the rest of 23, just yeah. in terms of how you know busy it's looking like it's going to be? And you know if you're going to be if you anticipate that you're going to be playing throughout the whole year or just certain parts of the year. I think we're going to take some time off in April and May, but then yeah, come, uh, come summertime, you know, June, we're going to be hitting it hard, probably all the way through new year's. Uh, we might do some recording in November if uh, we can work it out, but uh, I would anticipate we're going to be, we'll be hitting it hard at least until uh, uh, Halloween. We do, uh, we'll probably be doing some Halloween shows in Colorado so that people can look for that. And the, the New Year's shows, do you do a, a theme usually for that as well, or just a, a regular extended set? Oh, for New Year's? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. Um, no, we just do extended sets, you know, we'll play up to New Year's, do the whole traditional ball drop and all that stuff. Last question for you. What are you most proud of accomplishing, would you say, musically? I think putting out nine albums. You know, feel pretty good about that. You know, and it's uh, 
spanned a lot of different genres and styles and musicians. And um, it just, it's a testament to being uh, tenacious. I think that's what it takes in this business. You got to be tenacious, you know, and figure it out. You know, and that first record we made, we were borrowing money to try and make it and, you know, figuring out how we could record it and making CDs and then traveling the country like hawking CDs from our, from the stage, you know, and, you know, and now it's like, you can put a sound, a song out on Spotify and have it precede you in whatever town you're in. So things have changed quite a bit uh, with that whole process. But um, no matter what, you know, you, you gotta be tenacious. You gotta like sort of figure out how to make things work and keep trying. So, uh, you know, I feel like that's a, that's a testament to that. You know, having nine albums out. Congratulations on that. Yeah. You know, Thanks, man. next that's one's right. going to be sweet. It'll be the 10th. You know, that's, a yeah. that's right. That's right. Uh, did you ever seek a, a major label deal? Uh, no, no. And that kind of fell off, you know, towards the beginning of our career. It was like, well, what's a major label going to do for us? You know, that we're not doing already. I'd seen too many bands get deals and then fall apart, you know, go into debt, you know, like, oh, we get advanced all this money, you spend it on a tour bus and you know, yada, yada. And then all of a sudden you're in debt, 50 grand to the, to the record company. And, you know, you have no real ma- way to make it back. So it's like, I saw too much of that. I kind of, I knew better at that point. So uh, I'm kind of glad the way the industry has ended up. I know there's a lot of complaints about it i know it's still tenuous in a lot of ways but uh, for me personally i think uh, the industry is um has ended up in a better position for uh for folks like us and bands like us who are on the margins you know and and sort of you know found our place in the do-it-yourself world for sure well dave uh, been fun talking to you and i want to yeah. thank you for for myself the viewers listeners you know, thank you for all the music over the years and thank you for continuing to bring it. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate you, man. Couldn't do it without guys like you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkinstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkinstuff.net, and linking through funkinstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven results-oriented professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, 
This is Scott Dr. GX Qualifying saying, keep on keep vibing, on vibing to the rhythm of the one.